But when Jesus comes, you will be free from sinning. When Jesus comes, you will serve him and worship him and praise him like you have never done before. In Paul's words, the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at suffering in the life of a Christian, part of our study of Romans chapter 8. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy notes that suffering was not God's intention for us, but through disobedience, sin, and corruption entered the world. Let's rejoin him as he confirms this from Genesis chapter 2. When God made man, God made man to be in total dominion over the creation. And man had that total dominion before sin entered into the world. Look at verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Everything was edible. No poisonous mushrooms, no rotten fruit. It was really paradise on earth. And even the animal world was in harmony with man. In verse 30, God says, And every beast of the earth, And every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. They didn't eat each other. The whole universe was vegetarian. And I'm not advocating that today, all right? So don't send me a letter. In fact, I would advocate for you to have a good steak because the Bible teaches it, that you need it in this fallen world. Just don't eat too much of it. Look at uh, uh, (laughs) verse uh, 20. It says, the man of chapter 2, the man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and every beast of the field. Even the animals and the birds had no fear of Adam. It was a perfect environment on a scale of 1 to 10. It was a 20. In fact, ever before the great flood, the Bible teaches it never rained. That would be refreshing in these last few weeks, wouldn't it? It says in 2.6, but a mist used to rise from the earth. And water the whole surface of the ground. God had a built-in sprinkler system, an inner earth reservoir by which he watered the world. So the entire world, the vegetable kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, was all subservient to Adam. But when sin entered into the world, death came with it and the creation fell. And so notice, if you will, in Genesis 3 and in verse 14, the animal world now has a curse on it. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. This verse implies that not only was the serpent cursed, but all of creation, all of the animal world was cursed because he says the serpent, Satan, is cursed more than any, every beast of the field. What some would call the survival of the fittest, God would call the fall of man. That's why there's this lack of harmony in the world today and also in the mineral world. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. That's why it takes so much work and fertilizer to make things grow. I planted a tree recently. Within a month, it's all brown, dead as can be. 
Uh, you know, you can work hard, you can sweat at it, but there's a problem. That's why we have barren deserts and bad soils and curses the ground because of you. The vegetable and the plant world is cursed. That's why we have roses with thorns in them. And that's why it's easier for me to grow weeds than it is to grow vegetables. Look at verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Now go back to Romans 8, because this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here in Romans 8 in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The creation was subjected to futility, not because God hated man, but because God loved man. The worst thing that God could have done was to left us in a Garden of Eden kind of environment. We would never have known with the same intensity that there's a problem between us and God. And so the creation leaves us daily reminders that we are in big trouble. Sufferings, thorns and thistles, aches and pains, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunami, cancer, heart attacks, all of it is putting man on notice that there is something that is wrong. And so this is an expression of the grace of God signaling us that we need to see a solution. So don't view suffering as your enemy. See it as your friend. If you stepped on a nail and you didn't know it, then you might get tetanus and die before you could do anything about it. And so God puts us on notice. Now, there's a third analogy or a lesson that he gives us from the creation moaning and groaning and suffering. If you will notice the last two words of verse 20, they feed into verse 21. He says here, in hope, in hope, of course, as we have studied it in Romans and in the rest of the New Testament, does not speak of, like in English, of something that is uncertain, like I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon, but of something that is sure and definite. And I think you could say, I hope it rains this afternoon because it is going to. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a promise. The world that you see now is not what it is going to be. Register that in your thinking this morning. And so he says in verse 22, if you will notice, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And again, there are three groans in this chapter that you cannot miss. There's the groan of the creation, there's the groan within ourselves, and as we will see next time, there is the Spirit who groans. So God pictures the whole creation as moaning and groaning, as sighing, because it is pressed down in great distress because of sin. And you can try to fix it, and there are a lot of people who are spending their lives trying to fix the creation, and that's like decorating a sinking ship, it's a waste of the time. Now, I'm not telling you that you should abuse the creation. We are stewards over it. But understand, this creation is not going to get better. It is going to get much worse than you can ever imagine. Just read the Revelation in Matthew 24 for the fine details. But someday when Jesus comes back, the labor pains will be over. And he's going to fix it. Now, that brings us to the final point, And that's the answer to suffering. God never gives us information for information's sake. He doesn't give you information to make you a smarter sinner. He gives you truth to make you more like Jesus Christ. 
And God's interested in what we believe because He wants it to influence our behavior. Look now at verse 23. And not only this, meaning not only the creation, not only this, but also we ourselves, meaning we believers too, we Christians too, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So he compares the current work of the Holy Spirit to an Old Testament feast called first fruits. And it was something that every farmer knew something about. When a farmer plants his crop, the first fruits are the first things to come. Those early crops, and they are a picture of what will come some weeks later of the harvest that is going to follow. And so he compares God, the Holy Spirit, who, as Romans 8 9 teaches, lives inside of every believer, to the first fruits of this great harvest that is still out in front. He's called a pledge. He's called an earnest. He's called a down payment. One paraphrase translation says he's like an engagement ring. And like an engagement ring, that is the promise of a marriage. You, you never meet a woman who says, well, I've always wanted an engagement ring. You know, I, I always wanted one of those big diamonds. I don't care whether the guy marries me or not. All I want is the ring. No, 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 no woman reasons like that. The ring is a promise of the future, of a husband of a family, of a home, of companionship, of fellowship, and much, much more. At least that's the way God intended it. Now, maybe in five years' time, she wished she only had the ring. I understand that. But understand the ring is a future promise. It's a promise of the future. And he's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit has been given to us who in prayer causes us to call God our Father, our Daddy, Abba, Father, He is just the first fruit of what is yet to come, the redemption of our body when Jesus comes back. See, we've only been partially saved, the Bible teaches in the strictest sense, because God will not complete our salvation until the return of Christ. Fanny Crosby, that blind blind hymn writer, wrote, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's what you write when you're blind. But there's no blindness in heaven, no limbs that need to be severed, no hearts that need to be operated on. And so in verse 24, he describes what our response should be. Notice, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes? For what he already sees. Now, this is an important verse, so think your way through it. Remember, hope in the Bible always speaks of something that is future, What makes hope hope is it's still out there in the future. So he says, for in hope we have been saved. You see, when God saved us, God saved us in hope. In hope or in guarantee of what? In hope of the redemption of our bodies that he just mentioned in the previous verse. The future glory that Jesus will bring when he comes back. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes? for what he already sees. If we had it right now, we wouldn't have to long and look and wait for it. It's something that is still out there in the future, something that we long for. Now, the problem with a lot of us is we have a distorted view of hope, and it affects our perspective on suffering. We're only focusing on the suffering and not on the future hope, and we think we're going to be in labor forever. We think the suffering will never let up and never give way. And Paul wants to remind us, listen, you haven't seen anything yet. 
Some years ago, I took a couple of weeks vacation, and the first week, we put hardwood floors in my first floor. And boy, I bit off more than I could chew. But I did it with my sons, and man, we worked so hard, and I kept reminding those guys, I said, now next week, we'll be sipping iced tea somewhere, and we'll be relaxing, and we'll be on vacation. And it just put some stale into their spine. That's what Paul is saying. You're not going to be in labor forever. Someday Jesus is going to be back, come back, and the curse is going to be lifted. Let me share with you what is going to happen to the animal kingdom first. Isaiah the prophet wrote, speaking of the second return of the Messiah, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling, and the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young ox will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, not each other, but getting grass like before the fall. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Now, this has never come to pass, not literally, but just as literally God fulfilled every single promise for the first coming, He will literally fulfill every single promise for the second coming. And do you remember the curse in the vegetable and the mineral world? Isaiah 35, speaking of Messiah's second coming, he says, the wilderness and the desert will be glad and the desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. You go to Israel today and some tour guide, you know, will tell you, oh, here's the fulfillment of Isaiah 35.1. Look at the desert and look at the beautiful plants. And they have sections of the desert that are lush and beautiful and growing fruit. That's not Isaiah 35.1. That's the sweat of man and his brow and, and bringing water hundreds of miles away to irrigate the desert. No, God is going to go ahead and make the desert blossom like a rose. But not only will the curse be lifted off of creation, it will be lifted off of our fallen humanity. Uh, let's close by going to the book of Malachi. Malachi, if you're new to the Bible, it's the last book of the Old Testament. If you find Matthew chapter 1, the first page of the New Testament, you're going to be right at Malachi. It's the last page of the Old Testament. Go to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Let me read it to you. It says... For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now notice how verse 1 begins. It begins with that little word, for. And so that's kind of a hinge word that tells you he's giving an explanation for what he's just said. Now, in my Hebrew Bible, there are three chapters to Malachi. Not four, just three. Now, it has the same verses, but they paginate and divide it a little bit differently. And that's helpful in this place because it's giving an explanation of what he's just said in verse 18. So, in my Hebrew Bible, it goes to verse 24 of chapter 3. Notice verse 18, the last verse of chapter 3. So, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, how will God do that? 
Well, the judgment described in verse 1 of chapter 4, a burning furnace that will be directed against the wicked and the one who does not serve him. That's how he will do it. And what is said here is perfectly in sync with what God reveals elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus, in describing hell, said, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. No, love does not win, as Rod Bell, the false teacher, emergent preacher of our day, teaches with his best-selling book on the New York Times list. Hell is forever, the same word Ionion that's used to describe eternal life is the same word that's used to describe eternal fire in the eternal God. To say that hell is not forever is to say that God is not forever. In describing this place, Jesus said it's a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In the Revelation, John writes, of the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the apostle, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, says, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his, made, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he's going to be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The Bible is crystal clear that Jesus is coming with flaming fire, and that day will hurt and burn, as Malachi says, like an oven. It will not be a pleasant day for those who are lost. And if you forget that, you are going to lose your compassion for those who are lost. And we don't talk about hell anymore in the modern day church. And we wonder why the modern day Christian no longer evangelizes. You know why America is such a mess? Because the gospel is not going out anymore. And people are no longer being converted. And righteousness is not being exalted. And hell is not painted as a reality. And men less and less fear God. And the things that God calls evil, they are calling good. Now, by the way, verses 1 through 6, if you know Malachi 4, is all about the Lord Jesus. It's a prophetic passage that is yet to be filled, even with the second coming of Elijah. Look at verse 2, but for you who fear my name, I hope that's you, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So the Messiah, the S-O-N, is compared to the S-U-N as in many of our old hymns. And of course, the Lord Jesus made the same comparison. He said, I am the light of the world. John reveals to us that there's no luminaries in heaven because the Son of God in all of his glory will light heaven. Our Savior is going to come again. This is the hope, this certainty that the Apostle Paul is painting. Just like when it's dark and you look for the sun to come up, even so the Lord Jesus is going to come. And as we move into the end of the age, it's not going to get better. It's going to get darker. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. I'm a biblicist. But I am waiting for that great sunrise when the sun of righteousness will rise, notice, with healing in its wings. People ask me sometimes, do you believe there's healing in the atonement? And some of our charismatic friends would say, well, by his stripes you are healed. And just as by faith you receive the forgiveness of your sin, even so they would argue by faith you receive healing. And if you're not healed, it's your lack of faith. Well, yes, I believe there's healing in the atonement, but not yet. We're waiting. We are groaning. We are longing for the creation 
to be set free for our adoption as sons, for the redemption of our body. And Malachi promises here in verse 2, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Here's a picture of our salvation when it's completed. He's speaking here of the liberty that we will know as sons of God. And the sun comes up in that Israeli farmer's ranch, and he lets that little calf out. My, my wife and I, some years ago, were at her cousin's house, Gary Evans, and he had a calf and a horse that had been locked up for several days, and he let him out. And man, it was so fun to watch those things hopping and skipping and bucking all over his property. It's a picture, it's a figure of speech that Malachi is using that like an animal locked up in a stall, someday we're going to be released and we're going to prance all over the valleys of glory. Now we've learned today that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, to the freedom of the glory of the children of God, and not only does the creation groan? We ourselves groan within ourselves. But praise God, hallelujah, we have the Holy Spirit who is the first fruit, the assurance that there's something greater for us. If you know Christ today, you only know a small measure of freedom. But when Jesus comes, you will be free from sinning. When Jesus comes, you will serve him and worship him and praise him like you have never done before. In Paul's words, the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Some time ago, I read about a young pastor who lost his wife to cancer, and she left behind her loving husband and their six-year-old daughter. They had been to the funeral home, they had been to the church, they had been to the graveyard, and some of the members there at the graveyard offered to take the little six-year-old girl for a few days so that he could have some time to himself. The father said, no, I think we need to spend the night together in our home. We need to get used to it. That night they went home and they prayed together and he tucked his little girl in. And a few minutes later, there was a knock on his door. She said, daddy, I can't sleep tonight. Can I sleep in your bed? Can I sleep next to you. I, I want to smell, mother. Sure, sweetheart, come on here. She climbed into her daddy's bed, and they prayed again. They turned the lights off. It was just one of those nights that just seemed so dark, and the little girl said, Daddy, it's dark in here. He said, yes, sweetheart, it's very dark. Daddy, I can't see anything. Daddy, is your face towards me? I've never seen it so dark before. Sweetheart, I don't think I've ever seen it so dark before, but my face is toward you. And with that, she went off to sleep, and he couldn't sleep, and a few minutes later, he got up out of the bed, and he got down to his knees, and he said, Father, it is so dark. I don't think I've ever seen it so dark before. Is your face towards me? And it's like God whispered out of heaven, and he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. My face is toward you. And with that, he went to sleep. Now, as your pastor, I know many of you because you've told me and we've counseled together, you're going through deep pain and suffering. And right now, you may not have the answer. But someday you will have the answer. Some glorious day, God is going to let it up. 
And someday the groaning and the moaning will end. And one of these days, Jesus is going to come and he's going to fill your world with light. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Paul says, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Listen. The sufferings of this present age don't even compare to the glory that is yet to come. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no glory in front of you. And if you die or He returns today, it will go from bad to worse for all of eternity. Now, that's not God's heart. God's heart is that you be saved and forgiven and brought into a relationship, but God has no other way of saving you but through faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's bow together for prayer. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior, am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Is that, is that you? If you've never met Christ, then the Bible says the wrath of God abides upon you. And your need is to be forgiven. And God can only forgive you with the precious, sinless blood of His Son. And if you refuse to believe that and come some other way, you will eternally regret your decision. Today is the day to be saved. It is a gift that is not earned. Would you in simple childlike faith, knowing that God is able to do what He has promised, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, we know there is so much distortion in our day with the prosperity gospel, preaching another Jesus, another gospel. But thank you that our minds and our thoughts don't need to be distorted, that we can bring them in submission to the truth of your holy word. Thank you that as believers, our suffering is not without purpose, but it's in view of the redemption that is yet to come. We bless you for such great love. We thank you that you have secured us for all of eternity and that you have committed yourself to completing this great work that you've begun. Take the truths that we've learned today and sink them deep into our hearts that our hearts might be filled with thanksgiving and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at suffering in the life of a Christian, part of our study of Romans chapter 8. If you'd like to hear this or any of the messages from our series in Romans, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, or download the free Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes or Google Play Store. 
You can also request a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line on wagp.net or on searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow on Search the Scriptures, we'll begin to look at how different people respond differently to trials. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.